0: Let's take our Bibles together. We are continuing through, nearing the end of, of the book of Genesis. And um, uh, I'm going to take a break from um, moving through a book of the Bible. I'm, I've just about landed on what I'm going to do. And it, it might be at the very other end of the Bible. Um, almost certain we're going to go there. Um, but between that, I'm going to focus on some, um, after Genesis, just some topics around the attributes of God, and I want to give some attention to some theological topics uh, that I think are important for us in these days. Uh, So pray for me that uh, I land correctly. Uh, For today, we are in Genesis chapter 47. I'm going to read verses 13 through 31. So 13 through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. Genesis chapter 47 beginning in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left. In the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, so that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them, from one end of Egypt to the other, only the land of the priests did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, "Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, <coughs> and the harvests you shall give a fifth, and at the harvest you, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households." and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day (coughs) that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. And were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will. I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, you have spoken. You have given us this book. Your words collected. And while they are not about us. They are certainly for us. And because they come from your mouth. They are food for our souls. And we pray. Now that you would feed us. You've chosen to use mere men. To proclaim your truth. So standing here father. I'm asking for a special measure of your grace. To communicate effectively. Lord that above and beyond my voice, your people would hear your voice. That it would change us, that it would move us, that it would uh, cause us to be grateful. Father, that it would open our eyes to see wonderful things. Lord, only you can do that by your spirit and we ask that you would. So, Father, give us all the attitude of mind and heart and, and the readiness to hear from you so that Christ himself would be exalted in this room and in through our lives and in this church. And we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> I know I've used this adage and perhaps you have too. Uh, he can't see the forest for the trees. Now if you've said that to someone, you're saying that person is so focused on the close-up details or the here and now that they've, that they've missed the bigger picture. There's some bigger picture and you're not, you're not seeing it. And the remedy, of course, to that is getting perspective. Getting perspective. Well, in the section of the scripture, we've got a lot of details, as we read through them, of how Joseph wisely led Egypt through the famine. And, of course, that worked for the benefit of Egypt, but also for the benefit of his father and of his brothers. And that nascent nation of Israel worked for their benefit too. And these details, however, are only important for us in the light of the bigger picture. For the family of Jacob, they had moved from Canaan to escape the harsh effects of the famine and became well established in Egypt. But Egypt would not be their permanent home. God promised them Canaan. Now Jacob, the patriarch here, he had the big picture and he kept perspective by keeping focused on the promise. Verse 13 opens and just to remind us of the setting, there's a famine, there's no food. The famine was severe, all Canaan and Egypt. So the place where they had been and moved to Egypt, Canaan had, been, uh, Canaan had languished as had Egypt had languished by reason of the famine. In verses 14 through 27, what we see here is a fairly lengthy description of Joseph's stewardship. His, the things that he did as the second-in-command in Egypt. His management of Egypt's resources through that famine. And in verses 28 through 31, I really summarize that section as Jacob reminding Joseph of the promise. So, the first section after the description of the famine... Joseph's stewardship, and the second, Jacob reminding Joseph of the promise. As people set apart by God, Joseph, Jacob, and all Israel were called to use what God had given them in a way that honored God, and they could only do that, they could only do that as they kept God's promise in view, that is to say, keeping the right perspective. As we think about this story and how it might apply to us as Christians today, we, we likewise need to keep perspective. With our own eternal inheritance with Christ in view, we are to be faithful stewards of all that God has entrusted to us in the present. We're to be faithful stewards to use that for God's kingdom and his glory. So that's the lens that I want to take a look at or uh, look at this passage of Scripture through. So as we take a closer look at this, I've just got these two headings really from these sections of the Scripture. Stewardship and promise. Stewardship and promise. First of all, talk about stewardship. That's about thinking about Joseph. And I think we can all agree that he was successful. Certainly no one relishes failure. Sometimes success seems elusive and one coach who took his team to Ireland will remain nameless. I think that proved to be elusive for him. Some of you football fans know what I'm talking about. Uh, Before I was in pastoral ministry I I worked as an account manager, corporate account manager for uh, for some technology companies and we were selling uh, technology solutions. well, if you've worked in sales, you know what this is like. If you've probably been to those training sessions, well, back in the late 80s and early 90s, um, I, I suppose it's more ethical now, but it didn't feel so. And not all of our sales training was this way, but it seemed to traffic on, on um, appealing to the baser human desires for greed and, and competitiveness and, and, and just doing better over the other guy that that image of Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, greed is good, was sort of held up as a kind of a, yeah, you might not be exactly like that, but it not so bad, is it? Hey, you want to be successful, right? Of course, that's a, a caricature, but I think we get it. The worldly view of success measures only the results. It doesn't matter who you abuse and what moral corners you cut. It's all about the bottom line, right? But from God's point of view, success is not primarily about getting what you want for yourself, but in recognizing that God owns everything and being faithful to him in how you use the resources entrusted to you. That is stewardship. Now, again, Joseph, by all accounts, was successful. But but what is that success? And I think it's an important question that we should all consider. Joseph got results for Egypt because he was discerning and wise. We learned that back in chapter 41, verse 33. And of course, being discerning and wise, those are godly qualities, and he developed those since his youth. Joseph was successful because he was faithful where God had placed him. And verses 14 through 27 is really the record of, of his stewardship. And I'll just summarize what's going on here as you can see how he worked this out so that he could manage the famine. Before the famine he had saved, in those seven years of plenty, he had saved one-fifth and put it in storehouses. One-fifth of the produce. Here we are in verse 14. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. He brought all the money into Pharaoh's house. Again, Joseph managed well through the prosperity, and now he is managing through the famine. Verse 15, the Egyptians spent all their money in grain, but he had grain to sell them, right? Otherwise they would have starved. Then when the money ran out, verse 17, the Egyptians traded all of their livestock for grain. And then the following year, when they had no more grain, they came back to Joseph, and they basically sold their land and themselves to Pharaoh. They effectively became sharecroppers, paying 20% rent from their produce. Now, this is just a little aside. I don't know if this is significant, but as we're looking at this, I can't help but see in this description a great reversal. Now, you remember, Joseph brothers wanted to kill him, so he was sold as a slave for money so that he would not die. If you recall, they threw him in the pit, they were intending to kill him, but he was sold as a slave so that he would not die. Now the Egyptians are coming to him saying, Give us food, why should we die? And now he has taken money, he has taken livestock, he's taken their very persons in exchange for the seed that they may not die. And all of the citizens of Egypt effectively became servants to Pharaoh. Verse 21, As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other, yeah, I just see it as a great reversal here. The Egyptians went from being landowners before the famine to sharecroppers. And going forward, they would now have to pay 20% of their produce to the king of Egypt as, as rent, as I've already mentioned. Now I know some commentators, as I've studied this this last week, they suggest that Joseph might have been unethical in his demands, that the people were, were unduly harsh. Uh, he was unduly harsh with the people. But they were delighted to trade anything so that they could survive. They were happy to be alive. What Joseph did was he produced results on behalf of Pharaoh. He was a servant of Pharaoh, second in command, but he was a servant of Pharaoh. And as a result, he had the respect of the king of Egypt as well as the people, honor from the Egyptians. And now where he is, he has a, a wife of nobility. He has two sons. He has everything that he could want or need. Now imagine you're in Joseph's sandals, where you've come from, where you are, looking at all that you've been able to do. He's got no shortage of anything, second in command in Egypt. What now? What now? He's managed it. What's he thinking? What's going through his mind? Now, I think if you or I are in that situation, you think, you can enjoy the good life in Egypt, right? I think we'd be greatly tempted with that got all this everything I need there's famine I lack for nothing Jesus told a parable about a wealthy man who was who was faith, faced with the same kind of question as he tells the parable this you find in uh, Luke 12 The rich man asks himself as Jesus tells the story, What shall I do? For I have money to, sorry, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have amids laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Certainly a temptation for Joseph, I think. It's a good life in Egypt. You know, Jesus said to that man, said that man in his parable was a fool. And God said to him, This night your soul is required of you. You and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, is not rich toward God. Now I, I touched on that because I, I see a contrast here. Unlike the rich fool, Joseph was successful because he was Faithful, and because he was faithful, he stewarded that success for the sake of his fathers and brothers. You see, he never forgot while he, why he was in Egypt. You may recall he told his brothers back in chapter forty-five, seven. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. That was his purpose in being there. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. That's what he was doing. Joseph was not taken to Egypt for his own enrichment. Joseph was not taken to Egypt for his own vindication. He was not there for anything but to serve God's purposes. And so, because of Joseph, Israel prospered in Egypt. Verse 27, we read through it, and I I hope you didn't miss it. Thus, Israel, remember what's happened to the Egyptians. Traded everything just to survive. Verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Fascinating contrast to me. The Egyptians sold all that he had to survive, and Israel gained possessions in Goshen. Well, what's your definition of success? Again, the world says it's all about results, the bottom line. But God says it's about faithfulness. So, what is the evidence of your faithfulness while you wait for your eternal inheritance? Do you, and this is an important question, do you view yourself as an owner? This is my stuff. These are my abilities. Or do you view yourself as a steward, one who's been entrusted by these things from God? And how you live, that may very well be indicative of where you will spend eternity. How you live may be indicative of where you spend eternity. Are you a steward or do you view yourself as an owner? I'll take you to the parable of the talents, another parable Jesus told. Jesus described how the righteous regard wealth, the talents. The righteous servants in his parable used their wealth for the sake of benefiting the master. But the wicked servant, by contrast, had no regard for his master. He had no regard to use what had been entrusted to him for the sake of his master. He buried it. And Jesus described his destiny. And this hits hard. For the one who buried the talent, the one who had no regard for the master, the one who treated it like, it. well, it's mine to do with whatever I want. It's not yours. Jesus described his destiny and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to be clear here. The message isn't that you work to earn the favor of God. That's not the message. But the message is this. If you love God, your life will be marked by seeking to do what brings God glory, including the use of the stuff that you have, the abilities that you have. If you belong to the Lord, it's because God had opened your eyes To your own moral deficiency. That's all of us who are in Christ today, truly saved. We are there because we've seen our moral deficiency. If you're truly in Christ, you know your complete inability to be righteous before God. That's that's a given. And what God did is is he set before you his own son, Jesus Christ, crucified. Crucified. He set him before you, having done that in your place, and he raised him to life. So now, as a result of you seeing that and believing that, the Holy Spirit resides within you, making your very body a holy dwelling. If you're a believer in Jesus, God, Spirit, resides in you. Which means you're kind of not even the owner of your own home body, right? This is what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And here it is. You are not your own. For you were bought with the price. What was the price? Jesus' death on the cross. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So for all of us who are in Christ by faith, we do not live for ourselves. We don't live and exist to indulge our every desire. Our place in the world is about directing glory to God in everything that we do. Jesus said this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I say this to you as as one who knows full well that not everything that comes out of my mouth, that not every single action I take, not every single inclination of my mind and heart is oriented towards the glory of God. But this is what we're called to, brothers and sisters. So if you are in Christ this morning, you and I need to have an eternal perspective. The material things in this life will eventually turn to rust and rot so our investments in temporal things whether that's time abilities resources those things should be about eternal rewards jesus said this to pile on do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves neither that uh, where neither Sorry, where thieves do not break in and steal. So you lay up treasures in heaven by using what's been entrusted to you. Whether that's an ability or, or some kind of resource, using it for the sake of God's kingdom and his glory. We often sing these words uh, from First Peter here. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's the exhortation. And then he gives the why, verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are stewards. We're not owners. And as you think about how you live your life and as you get up in the morning think, what are you going to do with this next day? What are you going to do with the next hour? Look at it through that lens. Jesus bought me, redeemed me from certain condemnation because of my own sin. And now he's justified me in the presence of God the Father. What do I do now? Orient my life towards what what brings God glory. That doesn't mean that you're, you're singing hymns all day, but when you go to your job, When you parent your children, you're thinking, how do I do this job? How do I raise my children? How do I have this interaction with this friend? How do I participate in the hobby in a way that honors and glorifies God? You're a steward. Well, second, I want to talk about the promise. The promise. Famous last words are often recorded. In fact, I was looking this up. There's a website that lists some of the famous things that famous people have said and, and they're listed because they seem to be ironic. Right? Very entertaining to read those things and then what happened to them after. But those last words are not always important for the next generation. And in fact, I think the, the last words of people that are most important may not be the absolute very last, but words written or stated for after you're no longer breathing, after you've been buried in the ground. And that's the last will and testament. Of course, many here probably have those legal declarations in place. That will directs how any remaining material assets or sentimental artifacts, how they're directed and distributed upon death. Now, I take it from our passage that Jacob called Joseph to himself to really make out a verbal will. A verbal will. Look look at verse 28 again to the end of the chapter. Now we're told about Jacob's life. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. The days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not... Bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He, that is Joseph, answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Jacob, swear to me. And he swore to him. In this section of the scripture, Jacob bound Joseph with a vow to make sure that he would be buried in Canaan. Now, you might remember from earlier in Genesis the way this vow was transacted. The hand under the thigh, it was that same gesture that Abraham asked of his servant when he sent him to find a wife for Isaac. Now this whole thing might seem odd to us, it certainly seems odd to me. Jewish commentators suggest that the hand under the thigh implies some sort of submission. So you're you're sitting on the hand of the lesser. He is dependent. Others suggest it's a kind of a, a, use, a euphemism for the hand under or near, and I won't be more explicit than this, the generative organs as an indication that the vow has something to do with offspring. Abraham got a wife for his son Isaac. It was about offspring. Well, whatever the precise meaning, what is clear to me is that the vow was vitally important, and it had to do with the future of Jacob's offspring. This is a vow that could not be neglected. This is something that could not be set aside. And Maybe it's the closest thing to a notary seal or a legal stamp on a document. I don't know. Now, you might be thinking, what's what's the big deal about a grave site? I thought about this a lot. So the the Holy Spirit here has moved Moses, the author of this, to write this. And deemed it important to us that we know about this burial site. Now I take it that it was an important detail because Jacob wanted to be sure. Here's here's what I think. Jacob wanted to be sure that Joseph and all his sons were focused on the promise from God for his offspring. Joseph, you're making this vow. This is about offspring. Now times were good in Goshen. Again, we, we talked about this. They were, they were fruitful. Verse 27, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. These are good times. And it would have been very tempting, same for Jake, uh, Joseph, I should say, to settle there, to abandon God's promise and, and just, hey, this is good. God's blessing us here. Let's enjoy the bounty of Goshen. But that's not what was promised. Jacob remembered the promise and he wanted his sons to remember that Canaan was the promise. As the Lord told Abraham, I will give you And to your offspring, after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So claiming that very promise, again, Abraham was sojourning in Canaan. He had not fully possessed it. There were kings and leaders around. But claiming that promise, before God chose to fully entrust it to the Israelite tribes, Abraham bought a field. He bought that field with a burial cave in it from Ephron the Hittite. And that, that burial place was a kind of a, a deposit claimed on the promise. So going forward, Abel, Abraham had legal rights to that burial cave. And those rights would then extend to his progeny. And, and earlier in Genesis, we find that Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca and Leah were all all buried there. Jacob's desire here, as he's telling Joseph, that it be the final resting place of his body, was him staking a claim in the promise. And holding Joseph to that vow, he was compelling Joseph to participate in that claim too. And if we just look ahead, we find that Joseph himself would compel the sons of Israel to make the very same vow. You shall carry up my bones from here. And if we flip even further ahead to Exodus 13, and Moses would ultimately keep that vow. Now you might be asking, what, what application does a burial plot in Canaan told to us in Genesis have for Christians today? Like like the Israelites and the promise of Canaan, but infinitely better. In Christ, we hold to the promise of of an eternal inheritance, which is secured by Jesus Christ at his cross. So with Jesus' body lifted high, with his arms stretched out on that wooden beam, he bridged that chasm between heaven and earth between the holy and the profane, between perfection and corruption, Jesus bore all the sin, all the corruption, all the defilement of all who would look to him in faith. And when he declared, it is finished and breathed his last, God's demand of justice, his infinite demand of justice was paid in full. And It was paid in full because that Judgment fell on an infinitely pure sacrifice as a substitute. And so that once for all and forever sacrifice of atonement was accepted by God. And here's what we learn about that. Hebrews 9, Therefore Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christ, in his death, he became the mediator of a new covenant, a new promise, so that those who are called, those who have trusted in him, may receive the promise eternal inheritance. And now, all of us who are in Christ, we wait for the appointed time when we'll cross that chasm of death and enter the eternal joy of Christ. Again, back to the reason What's the application? Well, brothers and sisters, what we have in the scriptures is the declaration of something that we don't yet fully possess. Yes, we have the word of God. We have the promise of Jesus when he said, In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's John 14, 2. But that land, that place, that house, that is beyond the horizon of death. And while we live in this Egypt, figuratively speaking, we live, we learn, we work jobs, we marry, we have families, we enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us, even while we know that they're not forever. And God knows we are so very easily distracted. God knows that we need help. We need help to keep our focus on the eternal promises in Christ. And what did Jesus do? He gave them a promise of divine help. John 14, that same chapter where he talks about in my father's house a little later on. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The connection I'm making between the burial site in Canaan, which was the deposit on the promise, is the connection I'm making with the Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal an eternal I- inheritance in the kingdom of God. Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul explains that we have it- obtained this eternal inheritance in Christ. And he explains then what happens to us since believing. Ephesians 1, 13. In whom? In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And here's the wording who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until, that's future, until we acquire possession of it. So, two things from this. We have this assurance of an eternal inheritance in Christ. And the Holy Spirit resides in each of us to compel us towards receiving that inheritance. But like Jacob telling Joseph to bury him in Canaan as a token or a deposit on the inheritance... We must be proactive in ensuring that the Holy Spirit is guiding us. Now, we don't control the Holy Spirit, but, but follow me in this. You first have to decide what's not going to control you. Okay, you have to decide what's not going to control you. I'll take you to Ephesians 5. I know I'm bouncing through a lot of scriptures here. Ephesians five seventeen, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, And then he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So, exhortation here. Don't be controlled by liquid spirits or drugs. That leads to the loss of self-control, which leads to yet more sin. Rather, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only leads you to what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. And then, and then commit yourself to the assembly of God's people. That's the church. Where your affections can be stirred up by psalms and and gospel hymns and and music sung and, and played by Christian brothers and sisters that stoke your joy and your anticipation of the very promise that we're going to receive in full when we're united with Christ bodily in the new kingdom, the new heavens and new earth. Anyway, back to Paul's exhortation. And I think this is a question. If you've read that passage of scripture, "But be filled with the Holy Spirit." How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think this this has long perplexed Christians. It certainly has me. If we have the Spirit, as Jesus said, He promised, how do you fill up with what you already have? Have you ever thought that? Okay, I've had the Spirit, but so how do we fill up with what I already have? I would say this. It's about yielding It's about giving priority to the Spirit's leading and not listening to our fleshly cravings or or the temptations from, from the corrupted world system. Now, that only answers part of the question. How do you yield to the Spirit? Christians have asked this. How do we yield to the Spirit? Well, there are certainly voices and inclinations in each of us, right? But those... Cannot always be trusted. In fact, even our consciences can be wrong. They they can be overly restrictive because of past religious cultural influences. But more often I would say those consciences may be overly permissive because we've pushed the boundary so often in the past, we have no longer have a well-developed biblical moral compass. So so I would say this that the inner voice may not be the Spirit of God. But the way you fill up with the Spirit, the way that you are controlled by the Holy Spirit is by hearing His voice. And the voice of the Holy Spirit is not first inside you. Rather, it is infallibly crystal clear in the Scriptures. As it says in 2 Peter one twenty-one: the Bible was written by men, but those men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul echoes this this concept in his second letter to Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathed out by God. That's that's a single word in the original uh, Greek language. Theopneustos, if you want what that word is. Theo, meaning God. And you recognize some of these particles, right? Pneustos, like pneuma, air, you know, a pneumatic system. Pneustos is breathed out. And if, if you don't know this, the, the, the New Testament Greek word for spirit is pneuma, pneuma. Same word for breath and wind. So, so what this means in a practical sense is that if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if you want the indwelling Spirit to be in control of you, you've got to listen to his voice in the scriptures. That's where you're going to hear the voice of God. It's not the voice in you, it's the voice outside of you, in the book. Now, you and I do not control the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God. But you do control whether you are active in hearing his voice. So Christian brothers and sisters, we got the promise of this eternal inheritance in Christ. Between now and the possession of it, we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit and what he does is he drives us to listen to the very voice of God so that we live in such a way as that we actually look like people who care about that promise. When I meet with um, prospective employees, there's a line in our in our, our employment um, agreement where we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and, and what I often say is that I'm pretty sure of this. I would have I would, and I think this is true for you too, I don't think we'd have the least inclination whatsoever to do what is good and righteous and pure apart from the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure without the Holy Spirit, I would just do whatever pleased the flesh. But when the Spirit residing within hears the book and I hear the book and that's interpreted to my soul, I'm thinking, that's true. That's what I need to do. So, brothers and sisters, you've got to fill up with the Word of God. You can do that on your own, to be sure. But I think it's most powerfully active in a setting like this, when when we're gathered together in the assembly. That's, in fact, why the early Christians gathered. They devoted themselves, we're told in Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching. That's the Word of God, the Scriptures. They devoted themselves to to the breaking of bread. That's the Lord's table celebration. Jesus commanded that. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And I would say this, that fellowship is a kind of catalyst for the, for the word to stick in our lives. And the prayers, the collective response to God's calls and commands. Three times Jesus told Peter, Feed my sheep, John, 7, or sorry, John 21, 17. And the Apostle Paul exhorted his his pastor-protege, Timothy, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season. And if Jesus means for his sheep to be fed, if the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to tell Timothy to preach it, it must mean that God's people need to fully attend to the word of God because it's the voice of God from the Spirit of God leading you to take hold of the eternal promises in Christ, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit. Each of us have as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, compelling us. You're going to the promised land, reminding us, live like people who belong to Christ. So, simple exhortation, brothers and sisters, keep eternity in view. That's the right perspective. And you do that, as we declared together earlier, you do that by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And let the the eternal perspective inform the way that you live today, stewarding all that you are and all that you have for the glory of God and his kingdom come. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are that you have sent your Son and you are preparing for us a place and that we are a people who are receiving a kingdom. So God, keep our focus there. Keep our perspective on the eternal promises that you have made in your word. Keep our eyes and our hearts submitted to and, and craving the very food of your word so that by the Spirit indwelling us we may Take hold of those words, and and those words might indeed change us and make us the kind of people that are ready to be in your presence for an eternity. All glory, Father, belongs to your Son. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.